your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today I welcome to the show Julia Aziz, Licensed Clinical Social Worker Supervisor, Ordained Interfaith Minister, Certified Clinical Hypnotherapist, and has also done studies in traditional healing, who will be discussing her practice in an area of specialty, grief and loss. Welcome to the show, Julia. Thanks so much for having me. So you've got quite the bit of credentials. Can you tell us uh, more about your credentials and experience? Sure. Um, well, I started a, a long time ago. I came to Austin in 97 for my master's in social work. And, um, and actually, after I completed that, maybe a, a couple of years later, did a um, a seminary program in interfaith studies. And um, through, through the years, you know, I've been a therapist for over 20 years now, and that's really changed over time. You know, I'd say that therapy was my first career. I started, you know, at 22. But I think now I, I see it as I'm in my second career of therapy now, because it's really changed as, as I've grown and changed. And as I've learned more about the, the process of of healing and growth. Um, mm -hmm. So I've, you know, I come from, I've, I've been a meditator for many years. I work with movement and body awareness, um, parts work, that sort of thing. So, you know, really I'd say more than there, you know, there's all these acronyms after the name, but you know, what does that really mean? You know, what, it, right. what you know, the way I see it is that the therapist is as good as what, what she or he has integrated into themselves, you know? So I'd say at this point I work pretty intuitively and, and I'm grateful for that training and um, education and experience. And I feel like it's given me a good foundation to be able to show up with people and, you know, listen deeply and see what's needed in the moment. Mm -hmm. Cool. Do you accept insurance? If so, what, which ones? If not, why not? I don't take insurance. Um, 
I purposely keep my individual counseling practice pretty small. I don't have more than 12 sessions in a week. And I put a half an hour in between each one of them so that I can really um, cleanse myself and really feel focused and ready for each person. So insurance billing takes, as I'm sure you know, you know, takes a good amount of time and effort and energy. Um, and I do do some um, contract work with the Flatwater Foundation that serves people with cancer and their loved ones. So that's sort of the, the work I do to, to make my individual work more accessible, but I do just private, private pay um, other than that. Okay. Do you have a sliding scale? I'd say that the answer to that is the same. I don't generally have a sliding scale. There have been, you know, situations where somebody's needed it. Um, but generally I do that work uh, for flat water and end of life counseling and, and people with cancer. Um, mostly I do full fee. And, you know, the other reason why I don't take insurance is more of, you know, I don't work from a medical model and I don't, you know, I can diagnose people, but that's not the way that I see people. So um, at this point in my career, I feel pretty grounded and, and sort of working on my own two feet. Got it. Um, do you have weekend or evening appointments? I don't. Um, every once in a while, if somebody, you know, there's some kind of schedule change, someone might come in on an evening, but generally my appointments are during the day on the weekdays. Okay, cool. What drew you to being a therapist? Actually, can I add on one thing? I do one sure. evening, one evening a week, I lead a group. And um, that is also, you know, where I can work with people at a lower cost and um, bring people together. And I really believe strongly in the, the power of group work. So it's not a therapy group. It's um, what I call self-healing and community. And I can talk more about that later. But anyway, that's on Tuesday evenings. Sorry, don't okay, cool. interrupt. <laughs> Let's go back. What was the question that you had this time? Uh, what drew you to being a therapist? What drew me to being a therapist? You know, I was a very empathic and sensitive child. I felt things deeply. I felt the pain and suffering, not only my own, but of the people around me. And I didn't understand why people weren't talking about that, why there seemed to be something unacknowledged. And I couldn't, I didn't have the words for it. Um, and I was, you know how they, you know, talk about fair weather friends. I was kind of the, the stormy weather friend, you know, I was the friend that you, you know, we might hang out sometimes, but you might come to me when something was really troubling you. So even as a young girl, I, I felt the heaviness of that. I felt the weight of not just my own, but other people's as well, um, struggles. And I remember clearly being in the backseat of the car and my mom, I was probably in middle school and my mom was maybe talking about jobs, jobs that people could have. And she talked about a therapist and it was the first thing I ever heard of that I thought, oh, like that may actually be a way that I could help people. Like that may be a way I could actually do something of use. Um, so pretty early on, like, I mean, that, that was introduced to me maybe around middle school. And then in high school, I think there were a few psychology classes, electives offered, and I just kind of dove right into it. 
Um, but that said, the role of a therapist has never fit me completely. It's always felt a little restrictive. Um, so this is why I say I feel like I'm in my second, even though I've been a therapist sort of all along, I feel like in my, I'm in my second career of it because um, I had to do some unlearning of the psychology that I did learn, um, unlearning of the, you know, like the medical model, the perspective of um, people and growth and really move from this idea when I was young, where I thought maybe I can help, you know, maybe I can fix something or maybe I can um, help people feel better, you know, like it was about how do I, how do I make people feel better? And, you know, what do I do? I learn how to do that. Um, and that's, that has really, you know, that had to be dropped early on, you know, mm -hmm. very early on once I started even an internship, you know, working with people and realizing, whoa, this is way beyond what, what can I do here, you know, and, and going through my own process also um, as a person in a healing profession, like the letting go of the ego around that, you know, that you can actually do something like that for another person um, and really appreciate that um, my job isn't to fix anything for anyone, but that the suffering that we go through is, is life. You know, it is, it's the fuel for our growth. Um, so we're not meant to not have it, you know, but what can we learn from it? You know, and so can I sit with you through those difficult times? You know, can I sit with you as you face the shadow and, and the courage it takes to do that? and be a space where you can find your own answers, you know, and um, get to be a witness to, to somebody's own learning and growth. And, you know, it's, it's humbling and it's also freeing in many ways. And so I'd say, in, you know, in this second career of being a therapist, I, I feel more grounded in being, um, you know, being on the journey together in this way, and um, that my job is to be connected deeply myself, and to see, to see your light, to see the strength in you, even if you're having trouble seeing that, and then to trust, you know, to trust what happens next, to trust the process, and, and be in that, and that's very different, I think, than um, when I first came into it, and I was, you know, especially as an empath, kind of like, ah, it all feels like so much, like, how can we tune that down and you know that that was a different place to be coming from yeah yeah i think our, our approach i mean our approach should you know grow and change with us as we grow and change over time um and a lot of what you were talking about right now sounds similar to like meaning making mm-hmm uh, tell me, tell me more about that. <laughs> well, in that, you know, in, in suffering, um, you know, suffering is only suffering if, if we feel that way about it. Right, right. It's like that, that Buddhist um, metaphor of like, when you're trying to ride a wild horse on top of a wild horse, you know, right. <laughs> making, yeah. making your life a lot more difficult instead of, okay, what is, you know, what's my learning for today? Like, here's where the edge is, you know, here's mm -hmm. where I'm being stretched, you know, so can I breathe into that stretching? You know, can I, can I work with it? 
what is life trying to teach me right now? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what meaning does this have for me in the context of my own life and my own beliefs and yeah. um, all that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would say that my, um, for lack of a better word, spiritual um, connection or spirituality is more the foundation of my therapy practice now. Mm-hmm. Because I, I see, um, just, I feel a lot more spaciousness around, you know, like there's not, I don't have this idea that like if you're struggling with something that I have an idea of what you need to do now, or like what would make it better, you know, like I feel more trust that we are given, um, that, that we each have our own curriculum here, you know, mm-hmm. and that uh, our job is to show up, you know, to show up to it and, and respond as it comes. And uh, it's a real honor to, to get to be a part of that process with somebody you know, as a therapist, that's what I love about the work. I mean, it's, it's really an honor to that trust, you know, and that presence. Yeah, for sure. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself, hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I love to dance. I do miss that about the pandemic because I I miss getting to, getting to dance and love to listen to music from, from all different cultures um, I'm a long, long distance walker. I walk every morning for as much time as I possibly have. You know, I've been known to walk 10 miles to pick up my car at the mechanic just for the sake of getting a walk in. Um, I have three children. That takes up a lot, a lot of my time when I'm not working. Um, but they're really wonderful. Um, I'm a big reader. I'm a writer. Um, I love basically being creative is, is a lot of what feeds me and nourishes me. Mm -hmm. Are there any particular modalities you would say you draw upon? I draw upon, you know, when I was first trained, people didn't even talk about modalities, you know, it was a very different, different world back then. And, um, I've done a lot of different trainings, some in a lot of depth and some, you know, weekends here and there. I begin each session before I meet with somebody, I take time to sort of sit in silence myself, get centered and ask to be of service. You know, that's generally the, the prayer I have before going into session. And so I show up and then I work pretty intuitively from there. So I, I end up doing often, you know, Obviously, there's there's speaking and listening, but there's also parts work. Um, I use guided meditation, hypnotherapy sometimes, movement, body awareness. Sometimes we'll incorporate some traditional healing tools, um, but it really depends on the person. I would say mm-hmm. it doesn't, yeah, as as it is for all therapists, I think. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so you were a chaplain at some point, right? Yeah, I was, a hosp- still. I was a hospice chaplain for Hospice Austin and, and also for Grilling Hospice before that. Um, I'm not doing that work anymore because like the last hospice job I had was uh, like 24 hour shifts and mostly oh, calls in the middle, mostly calls in the middle of the night right after someone had died. And um, with three children 
and a regular therapy practice, it just is, it's not something I can do in this part of my life. And so that's why I sort of moved into doing that contract work with Flatwater and kind of in my, I love hospice work and working with one person at a time, kind of being with them through that end of life and into that transition of death and, and, you know, with their family, I love to do that. But the hospice system itself doesn't work like that. You know, you see tons and tons of patients in the schedule and all of that kind of thing. So, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, it's very, that, that work is very close to my heart. What have you found to be the common experiences of persons who are grieving a loss? I'd say um, the most common experience is that it, it includes every emotion under the sun. You know, grief can be sadness. We often think of sadness and it can also be relief. You know, it can be anger. It can be um, joyousness. You know, it can mean feeling very connected to the person that just passed and it can mean feeling incredibly lonely. So I think that the commonality is, you know, I often talk about it as grieving as, you know, like waves in an ocean, you know, that oftentimes in the beginning with a major loss, the waves is like tsunami, you know, and it's just like knocking you down and you might get back up and you're like, okay, I feel a little normal. And then it knocks you down again. Um, And that over time, often those waves kind of even out a little more, but they will still come and sometimes can come out of nowhere, you know, when the loss hasn't been on your mind for a while. Um, but it's not linear, you know, it's not linear at all. Um, and it, you know, the loss, there's so many people and things that we can lose and we don't have always, we, we can have very complicated relationships with the people we lose or the situations that change. So to me, grief contains all things, you know, and it's part of what makes us human. Yeah. What sorts of unhelpful beliefs do you think people tend to hold about death? And what about life? I'd say one of the most uh, unhelpful beliefs that uh, this culture has about death is that death is a medical failure. You know, it's like, there's this idea, you know, you fight the illness and you fight and fight and fight, but then at some point, you know, the drugs, the surgery, the intervention doesn't work. And then it's like, as if you failed when it's, when we have to accept that there's nothing more that can be done, you know? And, and I think seeing death as a failure is uh, quite a setup, you know, because death is life, you know? And, Mm -hmm. And I believe that our, our disconnect from nature in this culture is, is part of why we have so much trouble with death. You know, because when you live in tune with the seasons and your, your schedule, the, you know, what, what you do with your life is in tune with nature, death is part of life. And you, you get that at the energetic level, not just the cognitive level that we know. Um, so I think, you know, and, and also seeing death in this way of, yeah, as a failure, as this final, like it's, it's, it's such a, it's sad, you know, there's something that feels very um, lacking in that, you know, like it's, it doesn't make room for the, you know, when something is lost, 
like this space opens up and what might be reborn, you know, what might come in. I'm not saying that person, you know, if you, if you're, we're talking about a loss of a person that you love, um, that person's not going to come back to life, but your connection with them, you know, may actually become something different after they're Mm -hmm. gone. And we don't really have space to talk about that in this culture. And I think um, it's, it's too bad because people have all kinds of experiences that don't feel safe to talk about in, in, in public. Mm -hmm. I never thought about that before, but, but you're right. I think death is seen as medical failure. And to see death as failure of life, like that is really quite the setup. <laughs> the setup, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what about well, unhelpful? Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say it's also, you know, at least the dying process. When in hospice, you have some warning, you know, mm. and that's that's a gift, you know, when you when you know that it's happening. I've seen just such amazing healing happen for people because of that, like having an acceptance and an acknowledgement of, of their own dying has helped them to, you know, clean up relationships and find forgiveness and um, really come to a sense of peace. And to me, that is not failure at all. Mm-hmm. You know, that is leaving a, a legacy of a, of a good death. Yeah. It sucks though, that sometimes we have to wait until, we're about to die to yeah. do those things, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I think if anything, the, the knowledge of death can teach us to live, you know, mm-hmm. it can teach us to appreciate, can teach us when we're in a conflict with somebody to, um, you know, make sure we clean up our own side. You know, do I feel okay? Do I feel in right relationship? Like, do I feel good about an integrity with my side of this, you know, cause that's all we can do but to be right in our own hearts and to remember, you know, we don't know how, we never know how much longer you have. So how can I live this fully, mm-hmm. you know, and we're only here temporarily. Yeah. What about unhelpful beliefs about life? Do you think that we as a, a culture hold any of those? <laughs> there's, I think there's probably a lot of unhelpful <laughs> beliefs that we hold as a culture. Um, this need to this constant like keep keep going keep growing keep going keep growing you know this this constant um more 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 i think is uh, exhausting and um progress for the sake of progress whatever that means you know again it's a disconnect from nature in the sense that there's a cycle you know where there's seeds under the ground and then they sprout and then they bloom and then, you know, it falls and then it dies and then it comes again, you know, and instead in in our culture, we want to just stay on all the time, you know, and we forget about the need for rest and to, to work with balancing, you know, and that it's okay to have times of, of high productivity and it's okay to kind of like come back into the more feminine receptive energy as well. So, um, yeah, slowing down, I think, is, some, is a medicine, myself included, that, that a lot of us really need and perhaps has been coming in more these days. Yeah. During the pandemic, everyone has experienced loss, whether that's loss of family or friends due to COVID 
or even just the loss of our ability to socialize as we've been accustomed to. What do you recommend to people to help them cope with grief about these losses? Well, I'd say, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think grief and, and lo- applies to all kinds of losses, not just uh, death. And so we, we are grieving all the time. So I'd say the first thing is to acknowledge that, that it's okay to, to be grieving those sometimes smaller losses, sometimes ambiguous loss, you know, where you don't know where, you don't know where something is, or is this the end or is it not? You know, it's, it's basically about change. So acknowledging and acknowledging feelings, allowing oneself to, to feel those things and to grieve that. And to, you know, for me, it's how can I pull back the lens and have a bigger perspective, you know, and see everything that begins also ends, like things are always in change. So this is a loss right now. And is it, is it perhaps like clearing something out and now it's super uncomfortable and this unknown and nothing else has filled it, but we don't know something else might come in, you know? And so there's some mix of not sugarcoating, you know, I don't want to just draw a silver lining around everything. I think we really need to acknowledge and feel those losses. You know, I I remember um, for me, the first thing in the pandemic before everything shut down, they, um, shut down this community wellness hour I was running that was just this beautiful gathering that included acupuncture and meditation and it's just a very diverse group that was coming and I just started crying when I heard that was shut down it's like oh we're not going to be able to gather as a community anymore and you know I think it's good to even if these are more minor losses to just give some space to grieve that give some space to feel that and also to you know ground one be in nature, you know, go outside, see, see how this happens. You know, this is part of the life that we're born into. And, and to just remember that things are always changing, even if we can't see that. Yep. Everything is constantly changing. Yeah. Nothing is the same today as it is tomorrow, which I think is actually really like relieving. Yeah. You know, because that, that always means that things can get better. Absolutely. Right. Our, just as our, you know, joys are not forever, neither is our suffering. You know? So right. everything's always in flux. And to me, that helps me to feel like, okay, I'm on an adventure here. You know, like I kind of like signed up for this game and let's, let's play it, you know, and let's, mm-hmm. We came here to feel all the feelings there are to feel and to have all these experiences and um, loss is, is a part of life. And it, it sometimes is excruciating, you know, it sometimes um, brings you to your knees and it feels like it won't ever feel better. And that's what's so profound and amazing to me is to hear the stories of people that have gone through just, just such incredible traumatic loss and, find meaning again, you know, find a purpose, uh, help other people, you know, it's, it's quite amazing, the human spirit in that way. And so I draw a lot of inspiration from that. What do you make of like, the types of losses of relationships of people who are still living? 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of Pauline, I think it's Pauline Boss who coined the term ambiguous loss. I have um, I listened to a pod, podcast by her and I really liked that term that she called it ambiguous loss. And that's, you know, the losses of relationships, that person's still living, but we can't communicate, we can't connect anymore. And it feels um, almost like it would be easier if there was a death because you can't fully grieve, you can't complete mm-hmm that you know like it it's not clean in that way and that can be very challenging there's a lot of ambivalence that comes along with that a lot of conflicted emotions um and i i do feel like that's for me has has been some of the greatest learning in life is to accept um and and i've gotten a lot of this from from actually talking and working with uh women in their 80s and up you know to see that there are things in life that don't get cleaned up that do not get closure, that we mm-hmm. don't, you know, I think as therapists, we often love to have that little package that we can tie up with a bow, but there are things that do not get resolved. And um, that is part of this great opening as well. Like, how can I be with the things in my life that are still unresolved and the relationships that have not fully healed? Um, can I have enough compassion for myself in that as well as the other person and the whole big mess of it all? Mm-hmm. How can I, how can I fall back into that bigger heart? Um, yeah. And have, you know, mercy. On ourselves. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think, I think life is kind of messy sometimes. Um, and I think that's just the nature of the beast, you know? Yeah, definitely. So curious question. Um, I came up with this question because I'm just extremely curious. Um, In your experience as a chaplain, have there been any reoccurring themes of the types of things people express on their deathbed? And what implications do you think these have for life? Hmm. Yeah, I think one thing has to do, it has to do with forgiveness and relationships. You know, I, I've, many times saw people they might have their whole family around everyone loves them and it's all beautiful and there's that one person you know that one child or the sisters somebody that something was left and not a good place with and that's the person they want to see you know like this real need for forgiveness and for healing reconciliation when possible um when someone knows that their end is near and and being able to clear resentments, even if somebody isn't still living or, or you can't contact them and bring them in, you know, really wanting to, to clear that has, has been a theme, which again points back to as we live our lives to be cleaning up our side. You know, we can't do the work for anyone else, but to be cleaning up our side. And, you know, the other thing that I've seen people, that I've seen a lot um, as people are dying is, is the person who's dying recognizes that a shift has happened and often is having some other experiences, sometimes seeing people who have passed before them or just having some, some other experiences and they're not able to talk about it with their loved ones. You know, a lot of times the people around someone who's dying, especially if they haven't yet had hospice involved or even actually when they did have hospice involved, would 
kind of keep a brave face and keep a smile and say, oh, no, you're doing great and not even talk about it, you know, that it's somehow taboo to talk about death. And then this, this person who's going through this major life transition that no one around them has ever gone through before, you know, that they've been taught to fear their whole life is now completely alone in that you know, amongst their loved ones. And so um, I think it's important that we, that we talk about death openly, you know, and that we, even if you don't know what to say, you know, when someone's grieving or when that's happening, just to express care, you know, just to, to let conversations about death be, be something that we can do, I think is really important because it, it can leave people feeling quite alone at the end if we don't. Is there any, because you mentioned like a switch happens or some, a person recognizes a switch. Um, can, can you speak a little more to that? I'm curious about what that looks like when it happens, you know? Yeah, well, they might notice that somehow they're not, like sometimes people don't really even explain very clearly what's going on, but they might notice like, I'm not getting all these medications I used to get or, mm-hmm. um, you know, that doctor's not coming anymore. And no one's actually told this person that like sort of straight out that you're dying now. Like you, you know, we don't know how long that'll be, but that's the process that you're in. And sometimes people really need to have that direct a conversation. And yeah. a lot of times that's someone from hospice, not always, sometimes it's someone in the family. Um, but it, not everybody can have that conversation. You know, that's a very, very difficult conversation for many people to have. Um, But I would say, I wouldn't say there's like one moment of shift. I'm just thinking of situations where, where someone is, you know, in their sick bed basically. And they're just noticing the behavior of people around them, but no one's actually talked to them directly. Um, or they feel in their own body, you know, I don't, I don't know, because I myself haven't gone through this transition, you know, but um, I think that, you know, you can, you can kind of see as someone starts leaving here, you know, their presence, they're going more and more inwards, and they seem like they're elsewhere. So you Mm -hmm. can kind of watch that happening. And I think it happens in, um, in, in kind of phases, and then plateaus, and will kind of happen again. Um, yeah, but I, I think generally when it comes to regrets, what I see most, what I've seen most has had to do with relationships and and also, you know, taking risks. I think people at the end, they are often doing a lot of accounting, you know, for their lives and, you know, what what has meant a lot and what have been the highlights and where would they have done something different. And a lot of people, you know, wish they took some risks that they didn't, you know, and um it's easier to see that in hindsight. Yeah. What role does fear play in death? I think it's innate for us to have some fear of death. I mean, this is our survival mechanism kicking in, right? So um, the body is going to fight to live and that's good, you know, and having some sense in your being that wants to live is good. So there's some, some level of, fear of death that protects us. But the, but that's, you know, more of the saber toothed tiger coming. Uh, But the fear, the fear of death, you know, I see, I see death as a, an incredibly wise and powerful teacher, you know, like a elder, elder teacher, 
ally who actually wipes things clean in some ways. Like because there's an ending, something new can begin. So death can actually is a teacher of, of compassion and forgiveness and rebirth. And so the fear of death, if you imagine that there's this very wise, very powerful teacher feeling some trepidation and intimidation around that is, you know, some of that is humbling and important, but it also means that we don't get to know death very well. And I felt like my, my years in doing hospice work for me was really about befriending death. Like I, I, I had some experiences, especially in the beginning that terrified me that really, um, really humbled me, you know, and, but the going back, going back in again, you know, and, and being with it and being willing to learn um, and, and letting my, my patients teach me and um, letting death teach, you know, I think that getting to know death a little bit more intimately is, can really give us a lot of meaning in life. You know, I, I can't say, you know, doing that kind of work, you just can't pretend, you know, like it's just very real. So the fear of death, I think it's, it's, you know, with us, you know, it's with us in our, in our human bodies. But I think in, in this culture, because we've made it like a failure, because we've made it, um, because we don't talk about it, because we only take a day off to go to a funeral and then we get back to work. You know, of course it seems scary because it's like one day you matter and then you're gone. You know, and when we look at it that way, that's, it's a very, you know, it's very sad. So I think it's getting to know death in a different way. And like, what are the gifts that come from that? You know, what, what connection happens through that process? There's really, there's really a lot there. What have you personally learned from death and being around it and, you know, your experiences? Gosh, let's see. I know that's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You mean like being around when someone's just died? Yeah, being around when someone's just died and and talking about death frequently, you know, how do you think that has, um, how do you think you've learned, what do you think you've learned from it? And maybe even how has it changed you? A big part of what I've learned has been about appreciation you know, it's been about appreciating the very little things of being able to drink a glass of water and having air to breathe and tasting a blueberry, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I think it has taught me both, both to make the most out of life and also to have a lot, a lot of compassion you know, that we're really, um, to, to take some of the pressure off while also, um, knowing that really love is the, the most important thing we have going on here. And I, I just, I feel very, all I can say is grateful and humbled by it. I mean, I just, almost, I feel like that relationship, you know, I I remember actually the very last hospice visit I did. And I, I knew it was going to be the last, I think, because I had given notice. And um, 
just really like drinking it in. It, it was a, a man who was 105, I think, who had died and, wow. and all of his, you know, his children, all kinds of family members were around and we were just sitting and they were, you know, his, he was dead and in the bed and the family member was around and the family members around and we were just, you know, talking about, they were telling me about him and his life and people were laughing and, you know, they opened a window and just uh, sharing these stories, crying, laughing and, and just feeling so much beauty, you know, like so much beauty for this long life and um, seeing how this person and who he was was carried down into these people who had loved him. Um, it just is a connection to this whole big mystery of, of life that is, I don't know any, anything else that is quite, has quite that power. Yeah. What do you think about life and meaning? Do you believe meaning is inherent or created or both? I don't know how to answer that, I guess. Um, I feel like we are little ants on an anthill, you know, trying to understand the universe. Like we're just these little people on this, on this planet. And yeah, we have some technologies that's told us some things about maybe what's out there in the, in the physical world, but I don't, I hold all beliefs lightly you know, mm-hmm. knowing that there's more that we can't know and don't know than that we can, you know? And so meaning, I think, is part of what we need as human beings. You know, it's so, meaning keeps us going, you know? It's so important. So in that way, I guess you could say we create meaning. And is there inherent, like, larger meaning? You know, is there, lar- you know, I, I do... I guess personally have, you know, like there are natural laws, it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can only see from these eyes in this little body. So I right. can't see the whole picture. So yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. But that's the best I got. Okay. Let's talk about grief related to change. And what ways do or don't you think change is akin to loss? And why do you think why do you think we grieve change so much? I think, I, I don't know if I can think of a change that doesn't involve some loss. You know, so even the things we think of as celebratory experiences, like I often work with, you know, women becoming mothers or, um, you know, getting married or something like that. There is loss in that, you know, there is loss in the independence, the individuality, you know, in those in those new steps that we think of, these are the good things, you know, and here's these bad changes, right? So all change involves some loss and something new and oftentimes quite a bit of transition in there that's neither one nor the other. And I think your question about, can you repeat that about why do we, why don't we like it? (laughs) Why do we, why do we grieve it so much? Why do we grieve change? I mean, I think we're most, you know, most of us are, are creatures of habit. You know, we, we feel safe, we're, we feel comfortable. We, we naturally kind of want to stay in our comfort zones and all change is going to push us out of there. And that is the nature of life. And we know that we need that. And yet, you know, anxiety and excitement, you know, those are the same sensation in the body, just mm-hmm. with a different, 
positive or negative take on it, right? And so it's natural to feel anticipation, to feel like, ah, I don't know about this change. It's the unknown, you know, to me, it's about how we are with the unknown. And I don't know if that's something we could even try to take away, you know, that change is about, I'm letting something go and something else is being born. And I don't know what that's going to be like. So we often are like, well, I'd rather stay where I am and what I know than have change occur. And I think sometimes we, we are trying to have a change happen and it won't because it's not time yet. And other times we don't want change at all. And it happens to us in an instant. And this is our work, you know, is how to trust, you know, how to breathe, how to trust, how to, how to be with right timing of things. This is what happens. This is, this is the life we live in. There's, um, in my work, I, over time, I've noticed that people generally struggle with at least one of four fears. And those fears are fear of the unknown, fear of change, fear of failure, and fear of rejection. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, like, Death is kind of a combination of all those things in some ways. I think death, you know, like grief, it's, it's everything, right? Because you take mm-hmm. a whole life and death means the, the end of all of it. You know, it's, it's, it's a, there's a finality, you know, e- even with whatever spiritual beliefs that you hold, there is some level of finality in the physical being. So that's a big one. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it, it brings in all, all the fears. It brings in all of the, everything about life. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's all of it. What, and you don't have to answer this question. What do you believe happens after death? I don't, I don't hold any belief about what happens after death in any strong way. I don't believe that it's something that I can say with a hundred percent or even 90, you know, any confidence. Well, like, this can. is what it is, right? <laughs> nobody can. Well, sometimes people try. <laughs> they, they like um, to think they can. They like to think they can, but yeah. So I have to preface it with that. Um, what I have experienced in being in the room with somebody who has just died or in being with people who have experienced the loss of someone very close to them who continue to experience that connection with people who have passed already, um, is the sense of, of something that continues, whether you call that the spirit, whether you call that the love, the connection that you have, um, whether you work with the ancestors. I don't have a linear way of of thinking about those things. All I know is that um, I think in this culture, we tend to look at what we can see and touch and taste and smell, you know, the physical sense senses. It's a materialist point of view. And I, I believe that we are more, there's more to this experience than what we can, 
know from our senses. And so I feel a connection with my ancestors. I feel um, that feels real in the way that you feel a connection with a friend that you may not see much at all, you know, mm-hmm. but that connection's there and sometimes you can call them, you know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I have no idea what happens. All I know is that I've, I've heard enough near death experiences, been in the room with somebody who has just died and felt something and also listened to people's stories to, to keep an open mind about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From those experiences that you just described, you know, um, near death experiences and the like, is there any like consistent thing that people report? I'm not a, a scholar of near death experiences, though. I I do love reading memoirs and I've, I've definitely met quite a few people in my life who have told me these stories. So I, I feel like someone else could answer that with more referencing. Um, but it, it is a common experience to, you know, some, some sort of light, some sort of oftentimes seeing people who they were close to before um, that have already died or some kind of guide um, I've heard many stories, like I'm remembering a a guy who was telling me, you know, sort of like having a choice point, Mm -hmm. being kind of offered this choice and feeling, I've I've seen people who've had near-death experiences kind of feel like there's some different purpose they either already feel or feel they should have, you know, when they come back. Those seem to be some of the commonalities that I've, from my, you know, less experienced, but, you know, from what I've seen, that's what I've noticed. Interesting. Cool. In your experience as a chaplain, what do you think the general public needs to know the most about death? Or what sorts of conversations should we be having, you know, like what, what should we be doing with death? Yeah. I think having the conversations not being afraid to ask questions and not thinking that if you don't talk about it, then somehow you're protecting this person because likely they, they already know and just nobody, they're really alone in that. Um, So talking about what somebody's wishes are, you know, for after they're gone and uh, whatever they may want to hand down, or if there's something really meaningful to them that they would like to be honored through or by Ask, having those kinds of conversations, I definitely recommend getting, if, if it's a, you know, not a sudden situation, but, a, and it's so hard right now, it's so hard right now, but if, if you do, if someone is in a disease process where you do see that end coming, getting hospice involved sooner rather than later is such a gift. You know, people are afraid to call hospice because they feel like that means they're giving up. But the truth is, hospice is the best our healthcare system has to offer. You have nurses and social workers and chaplains coming to your house, you know, bringing you things you need. Uh, they, they can, we sometimes would, you know, help bring in the long lost brother or whatever to come and talk to the person. I mean, there's just a lot of support there. And so um, really having the conversations, 
just ask, even if it feels awkward and weird and you don't know the right words, just saying that, you know, like, mm -hmm. I don't know how to talk about this, but I wonder how you're, how you're feeling about that. You know, how are you feeling about dying? Yeah. I decided years ago that I want a Viking funeral. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, now, I also understand that you facilitate women's groups and personal ceremony. Can you tell us more about those services you offer? Sure. Uh, I, I may have mentioned in the beginning. So on Tuesday evenings, I run what I call Release and Empower. And it's uh, a women's group that is not a therapy group, but it's a more what I would call like a ceremony or a mini retreat. So we, we do writing movement and vocalization and guided meditation. And then we come back together for just some brief sharing. So it's really about carving out some space. It's uh, mostly therapists themselves. So I work with, I mostly work with women who are helping professionals, sometimes, you know, oftentimes moms, not always, um, basically what we call emotional caregivers, the, the, the women who are kind of keep holding the world together by by holding space and, you know, providing that kind of care. And so these are the, the women that come and often they're burnout or their own anxiety and grief, um, going through life transitions, oftentimes women who really, you know, have been kind of hard on themselves, really compassionate with other people and, and want to build that self-compassion. Um, oftentimes women working on boundaries and being able to say no so, but the way that we work with it is not interpersonal processing. It's really about having a container to do personal work. So doing heart-centered writing practice and releasing, you know, stress, anxiety, depression, whatever's going on through the body, through movement, through opening the voice, um, having a rest time, and then being able to, to share, but not in... Uh, with no crosstalks. We're not giving advice. We're not giving opinions. This is really about witnessing each other. So that group is really about honoring each woman's own internal guidance and wisdom and uh, trusting her and her strength and having a supportive container for that. Um, and then the ceremony of work I do as an interfaith minister varies a lot. You know, I officiate weddings and funerals and coming of age ceremonies and sometimes uh, birthing rituals. It kind of depends. Sometimes that sort of work is is worked into my individual counseling sessions. If somebody is going through some kind of major transition, we might do a mm -hmm. little ritual work as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, a, I'd say, you know, part of, I, I may have mentioned this earlier about the therapist role feeling a little bit tight of a box for me. And I think um, I identify just as much sort of as a ceremonialist. And so being able to weave those two things together has been uh, just really nourishing, really, really wonderful. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, what are some common misconceptions about death that you've come across? Misconceptions about death. Um, I think, you know, the idea that it's, I think that some level of pain 
in the transition, some level of suffering, you know, that the, the body system shutting down is, is a process, you know, and I don't, I don't know if anyone experiences that comfortably, even with a lot of medication. Sometimes we medicate people so far that they aren't really conscious of what's going on. So I know, I, I guess one misconception may be that you don't have choices there, you yeah. know, like you, you, you do have choices about how much of a medication, you know, how much morphine or, um, or if you want to take all these other pills that come along with it, or, you know, you do have choices about that. And there are other alternatives, you know, for instance, acupuncture can help with pain relief or, um, so just, uh, and the idea that it's safer to die in a hospital, you know, or that's where you have to die. You can die at home, you know, you can die at home with people you love nearby. Um, but you, you have to be willing to sign that DNR and say, no, don't resuscitate me, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's a big choice to make, you know, that's a big shift for someone when they make that choice. But just to know, I think in all things, like to me, it reminds me a lot of birth, you know, the process around birth and, and what goes on around that, you know, birth and death being so interconnected in that way that we actually, that this is actually a natural process, you know, that this is animals do this all the time and they find where they need to be. And they, um, we've made, our lives are so complex, you know, the, the healthcare system is so complicated. And so we don't, we forget that we have choices around these things that we can. Um, and to, so that's why it's important to have those conversations, you know, just the same mm -hmm. as having those conversations before having a birthing experience. Yeah. Am I making it up or is there such thing as a death doula? There is. Yeah. That's Absolutely. So cool. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I love that term. Um, and I think part of what they do is similar to what a hospice chaplain does. And then the other part is actually more similar to what the, the caregiver does in the sense of like just really being by the bedside and being with someone in that in that whole process as they, you know, the same as like a midwife with a, mm -hmm. with a laboring mother, you know, having someone to doula that process um, is, is just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And everybody's different. You know, there are times I've seen situations where there is a loved one by the side of the person who's dying, like every moment, barely going to the bathroom. And then this one day, they have to go down to the kitchen. Mm -hmm. There's this errand and that's when they die. And it's like, that's when they can finally let go when someone here isn't, you know, keeping mm -hmm. them tied. So I think it'll, it'll happen in its own timing. And alternatively, I've, I've seen it happen where the person might wait f until somebody gets there. Yes. To yeah. die too. Exactly. Which I think is fascinating. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that speaks to how, we're all different also, mm -hmm. you know, different in life. Of course, we're going to be different in death. You know, some of right. us will want to be alone. Some of us will want that one person. Um, it's amazing how those, how those things happen. And I think another misconception, sometimes people have had just a really horrible experience with someone in their life dying and it was handled not well at all. And so then it creates this like, oh no, like all death experiences are going to be like that. And there really is quite a range, you know, for how that goes. And then there are certain things, you know, in the process where someone is just 
gradually, sometimes through abrupt changes, but gradually over time, kind of going, all the systems are shutting down and they're going more inwards and um, become a little, you know, become more unreachable. And to know, you know, sometimes people get worried because they're, they say my, you know, my person's hallucinating and they get really Mm -hmm. worried and, you know, and again, are they hallucinating? Are they making contact with, you know, people who have passed before them, you can use it from a different frame and explain it in a different way. Um, but to not fear those things, like to mm-hmm. see if we can make space for them and, and honor that and not be in this belittling, like, oh, yeah, yeah, dad's in the room. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, well, maybe, maybe she can see something you can't, you know, mm-hmm. who's to say what's real here, you know, it's, and also, like, <laughs> is there a way to help facilitate that, too? I'm just, you know, curious. To facilitate that happening? To, well, if somebody's, you know, having hallucinations or making contact, is there a way somebody could assist somebody in, like, in that contact that they're making, like, you know what I mean? Like, well, I think you could just the same as you would with anything else, right? Like suppose that you're having a therapy session with someone and someone else is in the room, you know, it's, and, but you're not actually able to hear that, you know, you could ask them, well, what are, you know, what are they telling you? Do they seem happy? You know, what's, what's the feeling you get or, you know, and there's a difference between someone feeling sometimes someone people feel seem very agitated by it, mm-hmm. you know? And so having that person that's, in the living world say to, to normalize that experience or to say, Oh, wow. You know, she came to visit you mm-hmm. and that can be settling. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times when people are in that place, they're not fully here. So, right, right. you know, it, but processing it afterwards, because people will kind of come in and out a little bit mm-hmm. um, over time, you know, you'll have those moments of lucidity. And, um, but a, a lot of that process is nonverbal. You know, so much of, of what goes on at the end there, there's a lot less conversation, you know, but the, your presence, though, is really important. I mean, that's something that always struck me the, the second time I did the first time I did hospice work, I was would work with a family over time as the person, you know, go visit weekly mm-hmm. or however often until they died and then kind of do some bereavement work. But the second time it was mostly this, these shifts, you know, where I would just like, get there half an hour after the person had died and they're still in the house and they want, you know, the chaplain to come do a blessing and, and be with the family. And, um, the, I lost my train of thought of, well, you were just talking about how, um, like being alone, uh, being with somebody after somebody has passed away. Oh, and- right. So yes, thank you. The, the feeling in the room right after someone has died, like, would was different with with is different with different people but it's um almost tangible like there's some presence there's something that feel something feels differently in the mm-hmm. room um so yeah i don't i don't have any cognitive understanding of of or how you explain it from a lot of different lenses you know but they're really um is deep presence, you know, and you can feel that as someone is in the process of dying as well. So sometimes people will be like, well, why should I bother going and being with them? They aren't talking anymore and they can't understand me, you know, and it's, 
it's your presence. You know, they can feel that love. You know, you can offer that just through holding their hand and just sitting for an hour or so, you know, or whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. So to not feel like you have to be having conversation in order to be supporting someone. I think that that's important. Got it. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but, and they're probably not doing it now, but Seton has a pro- program called No One Dies Alone, um, where they have a bunch of volunteers on call. Yeah. Um, and when anybody, you know, is about to pass away, they call the volunteers so they can go and be with that person as they pass. Um, I think that's such a cool program. I do too. I do too. And I'd be curious about, like you said, because there are some people who will wait till they're alone. So mm-hmm. I'd be curious about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's been really fun talking about um, just fascinating stuff. I'm so fascinated with it. Um, Me too. And I, I think I, I want to add too that, you know, because it is such a, you know, it's kind of a heavy subject mm-hmm. that to me, a lot of the teaching is about celebrating life, you know, is about, mm-hmm. yeah, really celebrating little things all the time, you know, finding the, the mystery in a, in a flower, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, I think that's, that to me is the comfort of knowing that this is a temporary situation that we're in here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, switching gears back to more about you as a, um, a practitioner, um, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? Yeah, so my foundation was in nonprofit work um, and social work. So in my, when I started out, I, I've worked at a lot of nonprofits in town. I started out at the Safe, what's now the Safe Alliance, mm-hmm. called some other things before. Um, I worked at LifeWorks for a long time, um, the Griffin School, American Youth Works. I, when I was in Santa Fe at the Santa Fe Rape Crisis Center, worked in AmeriCorps. So I've worked in a lot of different environments that, that drew in a very diverse crowd from all races, cultures, sexuality, ages, income, education, you know, all, all kinds of people and loved doing that work. Um, it's yeah, really, really important. And that's why, you know, what I was saying about that community wellness hour was a, a free mm-hmm. gathering that we, we, a free gathering that we hosted every week and about 25 to 30 people would come and, you know, receive acupuncture. And then we do a guided meditation and um, just a really brief sharing. And it was such a, um, really from, you know, people off the street to, you know, elders, to young people and of all different races and cultures and to be able to sit together in silence. Um, so beautiful. I hope that we will get to do that again someday. So, um, yeah, so I, I feel like I've, I've, you know, there's certainly some populations I've worked, I, I have not worked that much with the transgender population. Um, and I, you know, if, when I talk to a potential client, if I don't feel a yes, and like we are, this is like, this is meant to be, this is this resonance, I will do my best to think of, you know, to find them someone that I think is really going to be a good match. And I really want people to be connected with therapists that they feel get them 
you know, and I think that's important. What's the role of this podcast? <laughs> I love it. I love, I love how you say in the beginning that you ask these questions because it, people get, can get so discouraged. I understand mm-hmm. that, you know, you don't want to tell your whole story, this very vulnerable story to four different people. And, you know, so people don't shop around and then you start working with someone and it's not quite right, but you don't want to start over. So it's so important. Um, the therapy is, is the presence of that therapist, you know, like, so it's, it's totally different, even if two people have the exact same training and background and certifications, it's going to feel completely different. So yeah, I think it's great that you're doing this and giving people an inside view of who the therapists are. Yeah, me too. It's been really fun so far. Um, What would a new client expect from an initial session with you And what about on an ongoing basis? Is there any sort of structure to your sessions or how do you go about your sessions? The only real structure, and there are a few I I don't do this with, but I usually um, start off with some, with a period of silence. So I have a little meditation bell. I might, depending on the person, kind of guide them to, we're just going to have a moment to get grounded in the body, center in yourself, kind of feel yourself in your space, and then, you know, see what naturally arises in your heart that wants to be witnessed or be worked with today. And then we'll just sit in that silence and I'll let the, I'll tell the person, you know, they can, when they feel ready, they can start. And some people like to sit for a few minutes, some people it's just a moment, you know, but really have a sense where we're both tuning in together and kind of letting go of what came before so that we Mm -hmm. can show up. Um, So that's generally how I'll start sessions. And, and mostly I, you know, it's so variable depending on, you know, who the person is, but a lot of times, you know, I might, sometimes people, there are things that need to be talked about and, you know, that will be a good deal of it. But sometimes a lot of times it's, you know, some beginning amount of time where where someone's telling a, telling the story and, and what's going on and where they're, you know, what they're working with. And then we might move into more somatic work with that. So locating that in the body. Um, sometimes that might lead to doing some movement. Sometimes it might be more parts work and some visualization. So I'd say then we might do kind of more process work with that. And then, you know, towards the end, come out into processing, like what are the takeaways? How do you integrate that in your life? Um, but I wouldn't say that that's like, I don't have a, this is what I do every time with every yeah, person, yeah. but Everybody's that's, definitely. you know, oftentimes what some level of that might be what happens. Um, so, yeah. Cool. How would you say your clients would describe or experience you? Let's see. Um, trying to think of words that they, <laughs> that you wouldn't say about any therapist. I think people experience me as compassionate and present. Um, I think people experience me as uh, deeply supportive of them finding their own answers, like of their um, strength and You know, I had a friend once who, uh, maybe in a birthday message or something, said something about uh, a gentle intensity, and I, I'd say that I'm a, I ha- there's a gentleness that I offer, and a certain intensity in the sense that I'm, 
I will ask someone about their dying process. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's so, um, but I, I think generally my clients experience me as um, with them, you know, mm-hmm. with them, present with them and compassionate and generally supportive of their boundaries and of their really seeing that they are doing the work as opposed to me thinking that I'm doing it. Uh, a lot of the feedback I will get from my clients is that they are feeling stronger. You know, they're feeling mm-hmm. stronger in themselves. They're feeling like they're taking better care of themselves. I had a client somewhat recently say something about, you know, I've been in therapy before and I always felt like I really needed to be, you know, I needed the therapist in this way. And I'm learning that I can do things for myself. Like I, that I'm learning that I, I'm taking better care of myself now. And so, you know, I feel like I'm with them, but I'm also not, I, I also have the, the boundaries, I guess, of, you know, sitting with someone and also trusting that you, you have what you need and you can do this. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. How do you define holding space for someone? I love the term holding space. I wish it was more, more widely used, you know, because it's <laughs> one of these things that doesn't get acknowledged and it's so important and it's, it's invisible and yet essential. So I see holding space. It's like the, it's like the energetic container for what's going on. You need the container because that's what creates the safety you know, that's what, where, where there's protection around it. And so then you can go into the process. Um, and I think, was your question, how do, how do you do that? Or, or how do you define holding space? How do you define it? Yeah. I, I, de- I mean, I use the, those words a lot, but I, mm-hmm. I, I define it as um, being present, being present, you know, being present in the self and tuned in to the to the environment like if it's a group and holding space for a group versus holding space for an individual like however many people are there that it's almost like being present and imagining there's this this sort of uh container this this protection this kind of veil around around the person or the group or whatever it is um and that yeah so that it creates that sense of safety that a process can be done in here and you need to have somebody when in, in these situations, like there's beautiful work that can happen, but having someone who's holding space, it's really around witnessing and, and being tuned into all kinds of things, you know, just tuned into what's happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a, I think it's such a big part of the work that we do. Yeah. And I, I wish that that was talked about more because there's so much emphasis on learning new techniques of things to say mm-hmm. or things to do. And when it comes down to it, it's really about the presence with another person and the yep. holding of space, which is the non-interfering. It's really the, the witnessing and being there with you as you go through this. And there's something that happens. There's something beautiful that happens just in, in being seen. And um, I think that's, 
I think we need more space holders and, and to value that, that aspect of life because it creates the safety that we need for healing. Holding space is so important in the people that I work with. I work with uh, mostly the trans and non-binary community. Um, you know, and... Glad to know it. <laughs> traditionally, um, you know, trans and non-binary folks have a hard time being seen. Um, mm. So if I can create that environment where somebody feels seen, sometimes even for the first time, um, you know, it's incredibly healing and it makes such a huge, huge difference. Absolutely. Um, I think it gives people permission, you know, when you, when you've had that and you feel that way, it gives people permission, like, Hey, I'm allowed to be me, you know, mm -hmm. like, there's room in this world for me too, mm -hmm. you know, and we need that permission from ourselves before we can accept it from anyone else. Yeah. Okay. Are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with their clients? I definitely experience, uh, I definitely laugh with my clients. Do I cry with them? You know, I have mixed feelings. There have been very few times that I have cried in session. I mean, and I think really only very early on, I think, and I once in my, in my college years had the experience of my therapist crying and I did not like it at all. I really didn't like it. And I think that affected me in that way as well, because it felt like it was taking something from me. Mm -hmm. You know, it felt like, was she crying for me or was she crying for something in her own experience? And, and then I started feeling like I had to, care give, you know, and um, I will feel, I'm an empath, I will feel the depth of that sadness with my client for sure, you know, absolutely. And I will feel that in my heart. And sometimes there are situations, you know, where tears might come to my eyes. Um, but it's really important to me to, like you said, about the holding space to let this be about them, you know, let this be their space. And my job is to um, is to hold compassion for that, you know, to to be to be holding compassion for that. But yeah, laughing for sure. Okay. Um, what is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Hmm, it's been a while. <laughs> I was supervised in the early two thousands. Um, the best advice I've received from a supervisor was to or, trust or myself. Anything. I'd say to yeah. trust myself. You know, I think that especially when you're in the, I work with a, a, more than half of my clients are therapists themselves. And, and some of them, some of them are actually quite um, experienced and some of them are newer therapists. And I think that that can be the hardest thing starting out is like, uh, I've learned all this stuff and how do I do it? And, you know, mm -hmm to trust, trust your own intuition. You know, in the end, you're, you're just a person, two people here together, you know, and that um, I'm gonna, you know, open up and trust to the guidance that, that comes in and just know that you are enough, you know, like you showing up in yourself, having integrated your own life experiences and training and whatever's come before, you know, that that is enough. You are enough. That's good advice. 
I kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but I'm sure there's a variety of other things you could speak to. Um, what have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? I have learned so much. I mean, I, I think I have it on my website, even something about, you know, when I talk about my training or whatever, to say something like, I've also learned from every single person I've ever worked with. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it is such, such a gift. Um, what have I learned about my, did you say about myself and about? And about the world. About the world. Say if I take, you know, if I step back and look at the past 20 something years, you know, like what have I learned about? Um, I've learned that we can have such diverse experiences, such different stories, and yet human emotion is, is universal. You know, we experience, there's, there's, there's a range of like flavors of emotion, you know, and that you don't have to have the same experience as someone to be able to touch that in yourself. And um, that this is a, it's amazing what people live through. It's just amazing what people live through. And it's amazing to see what they make of that, you know, and how they grow and how they then go, you know, be of service to other people. And um, what I've learned about myself, I'd say is, um, I'm a human also, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> me too. And that that's okay. You know, that mm-hmm. I, I think when I was young, I, I was, it was particularly hard because I was so young, you know, and I'm seeing, you know, I was working with parents when I was 25 and, you know, didn't have a boyfriend or something, you know, it was like, I thought I thought I needed to, to have had those experiences or to know certain things. And I, you know, I didn't, I couldn't get on the pedestal, you know, and I don't like knock those pedestals down. Like we don't, those pedestals are why we have these falls from grace and why we're like, Oh my gosh, this person that we thought was so amazing. And now we find out they had the shadow side and all this, you know, it's like, we're all people, you know? So what I've learned about myself is that I, I'm allowed to have my own shadow and I need to be real with that and do my own work. And that that is the best thing I can offer my clients the best thing more than any training or education or experience in terms of clinical work that I can offer my clients is my ability to be with my own stuff, you know, and my um, commitment to my own healing is essential for doing this work. There's a, a saying that something you said reminded me of. It goes, one does not have to know how to milk a cow to know what milk is. Hmm. Interesting. Which is yeah. true. It's actually one of my, my favorite sayings. Um, yeah. What do you do to take care of yourself other than 10 mile walks? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is one aspect. I mean, every morning I take time to um, move my body for sure. And that looks different each morning, but it pretty much always involves, I'd say pretty religiously, a walk outside, like a movement that includes being outside. 
Um, I have a morning practice that varies over time. Right now it looks like some drumming, some meditation, maybe pulling some cards, some prayer. Um, those I say, those things are, you know, I cook myself a healthy breakfast. Like those are things that are kind of fundamental, foundational for me, you know, eating well and um, making space like that. And then, you know, in addition to that, things like, for instance, you know, I told you I have three kids, my husband and I switch off every other Saturday, like taking a day off by ourselves kind of thing, making sure that I have time on my own to replenish, um, connecting with friends, you know, with, with my own support system. Um, being able to, you know, participate in community, making music in community, doing, you know, like I said, creativity. That's for me, a lot of what is healing for me is, is being able to, to sing, to dance, to write, to, to move, that sort of thing. Um, but I'd say nature for me is the most, is where I resource from, you know, hiking and being in quiet, natural areas. Got it. I'm the same way. My dog, Batty, and I, we go for about a two-mile walk every morning. I have like a green belt area behind my house, and it's just a lovely, lovely way to start the day. Nice. Here's kind of a, a difficult question, or maybe not. Um, how would you define happiness? Yeah, that is a difficult question for me. <laughs> I think because happiness, I feel like uh, like U.S. culture is this sort of like slave to happiness, and we need to be happy. Like, what does it mean? Mm -hmm. What is happiness? You know, um, it feels great to feel happy. You know, it's a wonderful feeling, and I think it's it's fleeting like all others. And I think I'm more interested in joy. Um, I'm more interested in uh, celebration and, and awe, you know, being in awe of the mystery, being in, um, being in love with, with this mystery of life. Happiness? I don't know how I would define happiness. I, I just think it's maybe it's just the word has been used in this certain way, but I, I would say it's a, it's a lovely feeling. You know, it's wonder, it's, it's fun to feel happy. You know, it's, it feels like everything's working out and feels good and it comes and goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I usually tell my clients, well, I think it's fairly reasonable, like expect to be happy, maybe 25% of the time, sad, maybe 25% of the time. And generally I feel like our natural state is just neutral, like content, you know? I think neutrality is uh, undervalued. <laughs> I know? agree. Like, I totally agree. I, I've learned a lot in, in recent years, especially about the value of neutrality, you know, that actually instead of trying to make everything better in this like way, you know, to, to actually feel neutrality towards something is liberating, you know, mm -hmm. it's, being able to say, okay, like that happened. And now what's next? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that that's, yeah, it's something we don't talk much about at all. 
Yeah. And people, I find just their expectation, the thing that they strive for, the thing that they believe everybody else has, but they don't. Yeah. Is happiness. Thank Instagram and Facebook. And oh, I know, <laughs> you know, I know, I know. I, mean, I think it must be a super common experience for therapists, with, you know, to just like hear all the time. Well, but everybody mm-hmm. is this, and it's just like, and like, yes, those things happen. And what is all that's not being shown? Right. You know, what are the pictures? Who's taking a picture when someone's sobbing? You know, nobody's right. a picture. So, yeah. So we think we, we have such this biased view and then you you know look at the other parts of the media that we watch you know shows and things like that and happy endings and everything like it's just not that neat and I think that's mm-hmm. great to give people it's almost like if we shift like what the aim is and everything becomes just a little easier mm-hmm. you know if I'm not then I don't feel like I'm failing if I'm not happy all the time like oh right. I feel bored like can I be with the feeling of bored and then what will happen? Like, I don't know, but it's just, you know, how can I be so fully in this human experience that I can um, be with it as it comes instead of trying to get on to, you know, hang on to one or the other, because it just doesn't work. You know, on a no. practical level, it just doesn't <laughs> work. You know? uh, okay. Well, a little bit of a vulnerable question here. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician? I'm trying to think of most embarrassing. I can think of a very early embarrassing moment. It was my, I had just started at LifeWorks as a therapist. I was, I had an LMSW at the time, but it was, you know, I was going to start getting those clinical hours. And it was my first day at work and I was hired there as a bilingual counselor so about half my work was going to be in Spanish, but I had just, I mean, it was my first day of work, you know, like, so I wasn't supposed to see any clients. I was supposed to just be trained for a couple of days or learn their systems, but somebody walked in and they spoke Spanish and nobody else in the office spoke Spanish. So I, so I had, so they were like, you need to talk to them. <laughs> because they just walked in. So I'm sitting there with a pregnant teenage girl, um, speaking in Spanish and I am not a native speaker um, and I'm talking to her and I'm so nervous. This is my first, you know, first counseling session. And as I'm talking, I say something about her being 15 and I say, Diecinco. and her, her friend was with her and they just cracked up and they thought that was so funny. Cause it's like saying, are you 10 five instead of 15, mm-hmm. you know? And I was like, <laughs> Oh my gosh, they know that I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know how to speak Spanish. You know, I don't know how to counsel anyone. Um, so I, I'm sure I turned beat red, but we laughed about it and, you know, we moved through it and, um, yeah, so that was, that was my first day, day one, first client. That's awesome. It's cool that you speak Spanish. Not as well anymore. Like I would not, (laughs) um, yeah, it's been a long time since I've gotten to use it on a regular basis. So it's super rusty. Sabe poquito español, pero mi español es muy mal. <laughs> oh, está bien. <laughs> um, well, thank you for, for sharing that embarrassing m- moment. I appreciate it. Um, another kind of vulnerable question here. Um, are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy yourself? I've 
definitely seen therapists. I've definitely been in therapy myself. I think it, in some programs, I think it is required. I don't know. I think it should should be required. (laughs) I mean, why enter a profession if you haven't experienced it yourself? Um, I, at this point, there is a counselor. She's actually has kind of a different background also, um, a counselor slash ceremonialist, um, older woman that I will call now and again when I need support. Um, so I don't, I'm not currently in, in weekly therapy, but it's definitely, you know, in my experience, you know, like I was saying, it's about the person, you know, so when I've, I, I, I think it's some, there's times in life when it's really, it's been helpful to me to have that as a, you know, as, as a weekly support. And there's for, I'd say the last maybe decade or so, it's been more of a, on an as needed basis, Mm -hmm. but it's something that I know, you know, as, as I work with different clients and see how they use therapy, I really recognize, um, it's usefulness in different ways, you know, that sometimes it's like we're going through something really hard and, and you need mm-hmm. somebody by your side. And sometimes it's like, Hey, this person knows me. And like, I got stuck here and need help moving that through. And I think it's part of why I love working with other therapists is because I think it's so important that we give that to ourselves too, you know, and that we allow ourselves to receive and be vulnerable Um and yeah, have space for our own work. But I'd say, you know, some of my own personal work is not done so much with a therapist is done, like I said, in, in community or in group or mm-hmm. in other forms of, um, you know, I might see uh, other, other healers, other modalities. Very cool. Very cool. Well, is there anything else you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you? Um, I don't, I think we've pretty much covered it. I mean, I, I work, you know, I think I've really talked about kind of who, who ends up finding me and how we work together. (laughs) And um, yeah, I just want to encourage people that if it feels, if, you know, if it feels resonant to, to know that you really can have a free inquiry call and just, you know, check things out and see how it feels and, um, and find, find the person that feels right for you. You know, that that's really, that really makes a difference and your trust is sacred, you know? So, um, I, I really feel, you know, when, when a client is thanking me, I so genuinely feel, you know, that this is, um, it's really an honor to be in that space with you. And, um, yeah, I, I feel so lucky to love what I do, you know, and I, and Mm -hmm. I love other therapy, you know, I love working with other therapists and, and with people who are doing the work of holding space for other people. And I think because of my background in working in nonprofits for that first sort of like decade, you know, I, I know the toll it can take, you know, and so I really see myself now as kind of being a kind of like the backup support. Like if, you know, there's people on the front lines and they're seeing 40 clients a week or, you know, just like super busy and all this stuff going on, like to really have a a place they can come back and be a refuge. And like, this is a space just for me. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's, that's sort of what I hold for people. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on the show, Julia. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Noah. 
Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Next week's featured therapists and specialty are to be determined at this point due to a cancellation. However, I assure you, it'll be fun. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmit Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmit Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash NextQuestPodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.